We all know that video is a powerful way to communicate the value of what we do as designers and creatives. But if you're like most business owners, the very idea of creating these videos can seem overwhelming. Well, my girl, Ariane Belazaire, is masterful at creating engaging and effective videos for her business, and she's created a course where she teaches you step-by-step -step how to do it too. In her course, Video Like a Pro, you'll learn how to create five different styles of video, and for each style, you'll learn how to build it, how to shoot it, how to edit it, and how to promote it. I can tell you from my own personal experience that her course is so good. And she's offering a special promo code for my listeners. So go to www.videolikeaprocourse.com and enter the promo code Gale to get $50 off. And it's spelled capital G, capital A, capital I, capital L. Welcome to episode 39. I am your host, Gail M. Davis, and this is Design Perspectives. Welcome to the Design Perspectives podcast, and I am your host, Gail M. Davis. Being an interior designer is more than creating beautiful spaces. It's about articulating a vision and more importantly, being a valuable resource to clients. Join me as I gather insights from fellow architects, people of the trade, interior designers, and most importantly, the clients who value us. Any chance I get, I will always have Grace on. Um, Grace Bonnie is the brainchild behind Design Perspectives. In this conversation, we talk a little bit about everything. Um, but most importantly, we're talking about women in business and privilege. And I just, I had questions for her. Like one night I was just thinking about something because I was reading a book about privilege and just different things and, and racism and how it all operates and how nepotism works and just once, once again, everything. And, you know, I can ask Grace anything. So I just started firing off these, uh, text message emojis. If you know me, I send you an, an emoji. And she was like, oh my God, do you really want me to answer this? And then she was like, we need to talk about this. And I was like, can we do a podcast? And she was like, absolutely. So here we go. Enjoy the ride. Let me know what you think. Oh, and before I forget, please make sure you rate my podcast. This way people find me and this way I can give you content that you want to hear. Thank you so much. Enjoy the interview. Hey, Grace, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. Hey, Gail, thanks for having me. So I had sent you a DM voice message, I think a week ago. And it, my question to you, because of Design Sponge and the success of it and everything that it was, the book, the blog, the notoriety, everybody fighting to be in this book with you, everybody clamoring to get to know you. What does accomplishment feel like? <laughs> it's funny. I mean, when you asked me this, my, my initial response in my head was like, that's a funny assumption that I feel accomplished because I 
I don't feel that these days. I feel quite proud of the book and I feel quite proud of Design Sponge. Um, but they were very much, all of them were team efforts. And so I think sometimes as somebody who was in charge of those teams, I tend to remember the things that I did less well than I wish I had as much as I remember the things that went well. So I'm happy that like in the company of women sold well and that that felt nice. Um, and it, it really did feel like a moment of kismet where like something I actually wanted to do and believed really strongly in actually was commercially successful mm-hmm. because that that is not always the case. And Design Sponge While, I think it was beloved in certain circles, like was never super financially successful. Like we were always just kind of staying afloat every year because most of the money that we made went right back into the team or into content. And that's not how most blogs are run these days. And we didn't take any investment capital. So I don't know. I think I feel proud of those things. I definitely don't, these, especially these days, don't feel like accomplished or successful because I think the last two things that I've kind of tried didn't work out as well. Like I launched a magazine um, and a podcast right at the end of Design Sponge called Good Company. Mm-hmm. That just, we could not get off the ground. I mean, you know, everybody talks about magazines being so hard and they're just, they're really, really hard. <laughs> and I had the support of a publisher behind me that fronted all the costs. And it was like, you know, we would have had to sell like a hundred thousand copies of that magazine to really stay afloat within that plan that they had set up for us. And it just, it didn't work. And it felt like such a huge failure. And I felt like I really let down all of the people that were a part of it. And so I think a part of me is still carrying that with me everywhere. And I'm carrying it into this next book project and feeling like, uh, are the things that I think are important, not going to be something that other people care about right now. So I don't know. I think I'm, I'm as accomplished and successful as my last project, which mm-hmm. is something I should be working on in therapy more. <laughs> <laughs> all of us, sister, all of us. So let me ask you, how did the concept of design sponge happen? What, what made you say, you know, I want to do this. And then you're like design sponge. Mm. It's honestly, I mean, it wasn't my idea, which is, which is important to acknowledge. <laughs> like I was 23, I moved to New York. Um, I was working, I worked in the music industry for a little bit, and then I worked in design PR. And I didn't know that market editing was a thing until I started sending market editors press releases from a Uh PR company. Uh And I loved it. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I just want to write about stuff and walk around, take pictures and get to like, designers were like my rock stars. And I just thought they were the coolest people ever. So I was walking around taking pictures. And at the time, the person I was dating, Aaron, who I later married and then was divorced from like halfway through Design Sponge, um, suggested. And he was like, you should really like make this a blog. And I was like, a blog? Like, no, that's like what teenagers write about. like live <laughs> It's and funny when you like, say certain words, you're like, mm, that's for a kid. Yeah, I just wanted like, <laughs> you know, angsty teenagers, you know, of which I was one, but like, I didn't think that that made a lot of sense. And I was like, I don't know about this. And I kind of played around with it, like during my lunch breaks at work and like ended up starting a blog spot blog. And it was obnoxious. It was like the first year of Design Sponge was very cringeworthy. I was reading a lot of like very catty political blogs. And I thought that you had to be catty to be cool. Mm -hmm. And so I was super catty. I was I was just, you know, 23. I was just not my best self. Well, your, 20, think- your 20s are your jackass years anyway. So th- there's no judgment there. <laughs> That's how I feel. I fully judge myself. I mean, I have, you know, it was that 
a white girl with a lot of privilege and I think I spoke and acted like one and I think I'm very fortunate that one of the first things that happened to me press-wise was incredibly negative and it really knocked me on my ass very quickly and I'm, I'm grateful for it in hindsight but the New York Times wrote a big piece about like what the heck are design blogs like what are these things and they wrote about me and Max Wolfman Apartment Therapy and Harry, who ran Moco Woco, a Canadian design blog. And it was like this glowing profile of everybody. I knew the kid who wrote the piece, um, Lockhart Steele, who went on to found Curved because he and I both were fans of the band Fish. Right. <laughs> and he wrote, and I, I knew the piece was going to be great. And then at the last minute, a photo editor saw a photo of a clock in the room that I, in my room in my apartment that was where my portrait was taken for the story and was like wait a minute that's by one of the brands that she represents and they called me and said were you paid to have that clock in the photo and I was like no I saved up and bought that clock like myself not even with a discount right and they were like okay and they were like but did you disclose that that was part of it for this story and I was like no they just came into my room and took a photo and the entire story became Grace Bonnie doesn't disclose that she's paid by her clients <gasps> to write about them which is not true at all. And I almost got fired multiple times by uh, like, you know, different brands and different journalists right. <laughs> who were super pissed that like I had very strong opinions about brands on my own blog. But you know, to make a very long story short, basically that was my first moment of dealing with anything big. And I had built up this small audience and then they all hated me immediately. So it was a very quick and important lesson to learn. Like, even though that wasn't true, mm -hmm. I probably should have talked more openly about like, hey, these are my clients. I don't write about them because, you know, I'm paid $22,000 a year to be like an assistant to a publicist. And right. This is not what it sounds like. But anyway, I ended up leaving that job like four months later and going to write for House and Garden. And so that kind of was an important tr transition. But that mm -hmm. the first two years of Design Sponge were real, real rocky. Wow. Well, that's that's mind blowing to me. Um, so okay, so you've learned valuable lessons from that. I think people think that success is where the lessons are, but it's also in stumbling and failing where less where the most for me the most valuable lessons come in because I'm like, oh, I'll never do that again. <laughs> like, or, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and then I'm not hard on myself about that. Here's another thing that makes me crazy. Um, that people do, and I, I want to hear your take on it. Um, when I was in corporate, I always had to focus on my weaknesses and work on that instead of focusing on my strengths and hiring someone for my weaknesses who was strong there. So running Design Sponge, whatever, were you a delegator or were you like micromanaging? Hmm. I think it depended on the time and the person. I think I definitely probably had coworkers who would <laughs> consider me a micromanager. But then I, I know that I've had coworkers who were like, whoa, this is super hands off. I love it. So I think it depended on the person and the work. Um, I definitely was a big delegator. Uh, I would say like the first five years when I had a little bit of money from ad income, I started hiring editors and I immediately knew I can't do certain things and I have no business trying. And so I would hire, I hired Christina Gill to run our food and drink column. Um, I run, I hired Derek and Lauren. who used to run the curiosity shop in San Francisco to do DIY. And they were like former Todd Oldham employees and very crafty. And I was always trying to look for people who could bring something that I couldn't. And then, you know, at a certain point, everybody kind of outgrows their roles and they go on to do their own thing. And so there was always a lot of turnover. And I think some people, were more into that and loved kind of the freewheeling aspect of, of blogging. And some people I think wanted more direction. So mm -hmm. 
it was kind of all over the place. And I'm, I'm proud of the most part that I think I tried to let people have the room and the space to talk how they wanted to talk and to not like put my, my fingerprints on everything. Okay. So to me, it really sounds like you, like you knew wherever your weaknesses were, you just hired that person to step in and to take care of that. And it sounds like you trusted them. And, yeah, yeah and, for sure. Because that's part of becoming successful. That's part of your business flourishing, correct? Absolutely. I mean, like I hated ad sales. It's, to this day, I still hate them. <laughs> and I had two different ad managers and a couple, we had a couple different other people who helped us with that. And I, I never could have done that on my own. I was horrible at it. I was not good at bullshit. I, I could not tolerate the middleman conversations that you had to have. I mean, as you know, the sexism in that in that industry is rampant. And it's just the number of men who are like, well, isn't there a man I could talk to? Like, where's your ad guy? So at a certain point, like I did, my ex-husband ran that for a while. And then after we split up and after he left, um, Caitlin Kelch came on and was with me for the last like eight years of Design Sponge. And I mean, I think Caitlin hated that job as much as I did, <laughs> but she was much better at it than I was. And so you know, I think there are some jobs in certain fields that just aren't fun. And I don't know anybody who enjoys doing ad sales, <laughs> but it was a necessary part of the business. But I always knew that I sucked at it. And if you put me in that meeting, like, I definitely wouldn't bring any money home because I would just speak up too much. <laughs> and they'll be like, okay, and we're just going to walk out of here. It's funny how when women are strong and we know exactly what we want and we speak up, we're seen as troublesome and bitchy. Oh, always. I just, I find it hilarious. Like I, even now with Kamala running and I'm going off topic for a second, it's funny how everyone's saying like the Republicans are afraid of her <laughs> because they know yeah. she's a straight shooter and she's not going to take any of their crap. Yeah. I mean, that that's always been the double standard with women. And I mean, I saw that time and time again, we went through, uh, we had a fairly large advertising, like a contact that we had for years that that was our primary sponsor and they like kept us afloat for two years and there was a year where they had a competition where you know everyday people would apply to something and then our job was to you know promote it and be a part of it and help you know choose people and I noticed very quickly that all of the applicants were white and then I noticed very quickly that all of their you know winnowed down selections were all white and I said we can't and this was like maybe 2012 or something mm -hmm. and I was like we can't be a part of this and we can't promote this this isn't okay and they all wrote me off as too difficult and problematic and you know why won't you just stick to the contract and it wasn't until my ex-husband got involved and was like hey this isn't good for any of us like you can't do this this isn't like the contest you're setting out to do this doesn't even fit that like this is not what the average american you know homeowner looks like this is not okay and it wasn't until he got involved of course. that they even con that they vaguely considered like, oh, maybe we should try to fix this. And so, you know, I I just got really used to that. And it definitely jaded me. Like I don't, I don't just have very little respect for that industry anymore. No, I could imagine. Um, do you feel like you sacrificed anything or sacrificed a lot? And if so, what were your sacrifices and what how would you do it differently? Oh yeah, my personal life, a thousand percent. Um, I mean, it's not the reason my marriage ended, but I definitely did not put any time or not, not enough time into my personal life. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's, you know, I, I think that's pretty common. I think you either, 
focus on work a lot if you are that kind of era of blogger where your personal life and your personality are like inseparable from the brand like mine was. I think that you either make your life a part of the story, which I did at times. And then I think after I got divorced, after I came out, I decided like, I can't, I have to have a separation. Like if I do not separate this, I, I cannot be a healthy person. And so I started separating things more, but it definitely hurt the brand. It really did. And I, I felt bad about that. But I also knew that like, it is not healthy for me to turn my life into content. It's just, it doesn't work for me. And I know that that is kind of normal for bloggers and, you know, social media influencers now, but I can't, I, I gave up having a personal life and to try to figure that all out, like in your thirties versus in your twenties, like most people are trying to figure out, like it was definitely, it was definitely difficult. And um, obviously I'm okay. It's, it worked out fine, but I think definitely it's very easy to lose yourself when you are in charge of your own business. I mean, you've got to know what that feels like too, to run your own show. It's hard. <laughs> it really is. And you, and you have to be your own cheerleader and motivate yourself. <laughs> you know exactly how that feels. There are some days I'm like, oh, okay. And then I'm like, you know what? Okay, like today's a good day. I'm going to interview Grace. It's going to be amazing. And then I'll be able to go on to do my design stuff afterwards. I did a little bit this morning. I'll be able to do the bulk of it. And then I could sit down and do AutoCAD and everything else that I need to do later. But you have to, there's no calling out sick because if you call out sick, you're not getting paid. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. there's there's no I'll sleep in because if you sleep in, then you're screwed because now you're like rushing to catch up with what you should have done earlier in the day. Um, exactly. Yeah. So uh, th that's my other thing, too. When women think they can have it all, have it all, have it all. <laughs> it just makes me laugh. I'm like, you can have it all. But just like as Oprah said, not at the same time. And exactly. And I crack up when they want work life balance. What does that mean to you when you hear that? Like I cringe. I just I'm I mean, like. It reminds me of any countless number of podcast episodes I did where I stupidly made it seem as if it was achievable. And it wasn't until I did the book in the company of women when I realized, you know, I, I interviewed like 107 different women who all, when I asked them about work-life balance, were like, do you think that's real? Like, do you know what And it wasn't until I listened to all those people where I was like, oh, it doesn't exist. And then I definitely, as I've gotten older, I've known more women whose parents were, you know, career career people, regardless of gender. And I started realizing like, oh, there, there, there's definitely an effect, like working parents, regardless of gender, like you cannot be home and you cannot be present for everything. And no. There's always, there's always a give and take for that. And I also don't think people, especially women, should be expected to give up on their dreams and their ambitions if they happen to be parents. And so it's a, it's a really tricky thing. And I, I don't think any kids end up unscathed anyway. Regardless no, of how no, no, no. Are. We all need therapy. We all need yeah. to see Therapist. That's why I love my therapist. It's just, you know, this is this is part of what it is, and we all have to figure it out as we go along. But I think anyone who runs their own business sacrifices a lot to do that. What was the most interesting person that you interviewed for your book? And what made it what was when you walked away, what was what made that impression so lasting? Like you still remember it to this day? Oh. You know, that's really hard. I, I have the most memorable interview to me was Nikki Giovanni because she <gasps> was my like idol. And <sighs> I just, I love her so, so, so much. And I got to do that shoot with my dad because he's a photographer and she lives in Virginia where my family lives. So I flew home and got to drive out to Western Virginia where she teaches um, with my dad to take a the portrait. And, you know, I was there for 
maybe 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I brought her, I brought her a photo from my freshman year of college where I like waited in line to go see her speak at my college. <laughs> and, you know, I think she was very patient and nice. And just to be in the room with her was so meaningful. And she kind of just talked about the fact that she doesn't believe in mistakes and doesn't believe that, you know, it's all just learning and it's all just lessons. And she doesn't feel ashamed of that. And I still can't quite embody that, but I, but she does a thousand percent. And that was really nice to just be in the presence of like someone who is so assured of themselves, of their worth and of their value. That was, I mean, it was palpable and you can feel that in her poetry. It's, it's all there. It's just, and I also have to remind myself, like she's a human and I'm sure she puts on her interview face just like everybody else does. And so you know, I, I try to remember that even the people I put up on pedestals are humans and they have Absolutely. bad days, they make mistakes. Like, I, I think that project really taught me that everyone has an important story to tell and an important lesson that we can all learn from, but we also are all humans who are not perfect either. Oh, 100%. And I wish people would stop thinking that we are. Um, yeah. That, cause that just makes the lesson that much longer and that makes your life that much more miserable until you get the hang of it and you're in the swing of it. Um, I used to, that used to just stricken me with fear and like just make me paralyzed because I was so afraid of making a mistake because growing up, you it, it's so stupid. You could not make a mistake. It's like, don't make a mistake. If you make a mistake, that's not gonna be good. Everyone's gonna laugh at you. If you make a mistake, you're, you know, this is not gonna work for you if you make a mistake. And I'm like, oh my God. So anytime I did something, but if you've never done it before, you're going to make a mistake. Yeah. It's, it's going I, to be a misstep. And that and no one is no one is perfect. And every industry is constantly shifting. And what works one year doesn't necessarily work the next year. So it's impossible. But I think because men so often get to fail up, oh. you know, we don't we don't see a lot of that with women. I think there are probably women in corporate America who maybe get to fail up a bit. Uh, I mean, Betsy DeVos, but I feel like for the most part, I think, you know, women get to fail and then we're done. <laughs> I don't no. think we get a lot of like multiple, multiple chances no. to mess up and then get promoted. That doesn't really happen. No, I think women are held. Well, of course we're held to a different standard. We have to be pretty all the time. We have to have our hair, makeup and nails done. You know, we have to stay fit for, Whoever we're, you know, especially for a man, we have to stay fit and look like the trophy wife, but we still have to be like this, speak six languages and be able to take care of the house. And, and I'm like, who, who, who created that? Cause clearly a woman didn't, Yeah, <laughs> a woman would never do that to another woman. Like if you think about since this whole COVID thing has happened, women have really been more themselves and I'm pretty sure. And it's funny whenever you speak to them and they're like, they have to go out. The first thing they say is, Oh my God, I have to wear a bra. Ugh. I gave that up a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. It's like, Oh, I gotta go out and wear one now. I gotta be amongst people. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just really funny to me. Um, just the whole nonsense. Who, who was, <laughs> who is the easiest to get for your book? I won't say the most difficult because we can't say that. But. Um, honestly, it was a it was a very kismet project. Like I I wrote the entire book in two months. Damn. And so it was insane. And I think the the insanity of that time frame I think worked or it didn't work. So I think anyone who said yes, I was like, hi, we're gonna come take a portrait of you and interview you in the next three weeks. 
And people were either like super on board with how nuts that was, or were like, absolutely not. So honestly, I don't think anybody was like easier than anybody else. I Mm -hmm. think that everybody had a few questions. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some people were incredibly difficult to get, but it was worth it. Like every, every single bit of it was worth it. And it's interesting because it wasn't necessarily the most well-known people who were the most difficult to get it. Everybody kind of had their own issue. I don't know. Like, yeah. And some people required like a glam team and some people didn't care about that at all. And, and, you know, it's, it's an accurate cross section of, of women in America. And obviously the book should have had like a lot more people. And I could, I could go on and on about like all the areas of women that I missed and didn't include well enough, but I'm I'm proud of the women that are in there. And I think I have been able to meet so many people like during the book tour that we did, because it was pretty extensive, Mm -hmm. um, who just were so moved by different parts of the book. And I loved seeing that. I loved seeing like, it wasn't the most obvious people that people were moved by. It was just, I loved that. Some people were just like, oh, there's somebody else who like grew up in the hometown where I grew up. That's so cool. And it wasn't necessarily like, that's that super famous person that I really admire. It was just all of those stories really impacted people in ways that I had hoped they would. And when the things that you want and hope actually happen, that's a, it's such an amazing feeling. And so I think that project is just will always have a really special place in my heart. No, it should. That book sits in my, actually sits in my bedroom. Um, and every now and then I'll like flip through it. And I, I draw inspiration from other women because I'm a woman and, you know, sometimes it can be intense <laughs> for me yeah. some days. And I'm like, you know what, let me just read something. And I just feel like, you know, God, the universe, kismet, whatever allows me to pick up on the right person just to feed mm-hmm. my soul and to set it yeah. on fire. And I'm like, okay, I got it. Sip of wine, you know, great quote here, or just realize that they too have their own ish that they work, you know, they had to work through or they're, they're still working through, but they, they make it sound amazing and like, sister, go, you can do it. And that's super important. So I just want to say thank you again for this. This was, I just love talking here. Like I could just do a podcast for forever. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, I feel the same. Um, Tell the lovely people where they can find you. I am still at Design Sponge on Instagram, and that's pretty much it. I don't do anything else anymore. (laughs) (laughs) When is your next book coming out? Or am I putting you on the spot? Theoretically, supposed to be fall 2021. So next fall, theoretically, we'll see. (laughs) Are they talking? It is. It is is being written. It's happening as we speak. Perfect. And is it the same concept or is it something a little different? Can you talk anything about it or not? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's um, it's a little bit different. So it's still going to be about the same number of people, except I think one of the things I learned most from in the company of women was I definitely included women who were over 60, but I really wanted this next book to be about celebrating people who had had more life and work experience. So it's sort of a celebrating elders, but also celebrating intergenerational friendships and so I would say half the book is going to be profiles very similar to in the company of incredible women who are over 60 who have been athletes writers scientists politicians like all over the board and then we've chosen people who have meaningful intergenerational friendships mentorships community connections to talk about how important and meaningful it is when women have connections that are not just in their age group. And we're really Amen. trying to find a way to safely do that during the pandemic and get people together for a photo. It's very challenging. I can imagine. Um, 
but I, I'm really excited about these conversations because I think so much story and history and power is passed down between women of you know very different age groups. Agreed. Um, before we go, I just want to share something. My most favorite aunt, who was my mother's childhood friend from second grade, passed away a couple of months ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. No, thank you. Okay, I'm trying not to cry here. Um, my aunt Mabel was the most amazing woman I have mm. ever met. And when you say relationships with older women, I have to say every, I am who I am because of women like her and my mm. girlfriend's mother, Mrs. Mitchell, who is absolutely amazing. So I'm so glad you have that in I your just, life. They were just so grounded and uh, just absolutely amazing. I can't even begin to put into words how much they've impacted my life and just help create, you know, who I am. And when they say it takes a village to raise children, these were my moms. And this was my mother's best friend. And then my girlfriend's mother became a mentor to me. And these are strong black women that came from essentially nothing and just really made it, you know, in my eyes to where they are. So I'm looking yeah. forward to your book and thank you so much. And sorry, everybody, I'm crying. I just, this just no really sorry. touched it her no, for no, me. No, no sorries. That, it's important to share emotion. And I think that these types of connections are those ones that bring out really deep feelings. Because oh. when you talk with somebody who's had a long life and a lot of experience, like that comes with a lot of oh my God. pain, but also a lot of wisdom. But yes. it does come with a lot of pain and grief. And, you know, those things are important to feel and acknowledge too. Oh, and let me not forget my grandmother who lived to be 105. She had tons oh. of wisdom. <laughs> so, and she <laughs> she's like, you know, first generation born freed, like, you know, wow. and that, that also had its own impact. So, Thank you again for this conversation. Thank you. <laughs> and I appreciate you. I appreciate you too, Gail. Enjoy your day, my love. You too. Hey there, I need your help. If you love the show, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes if you are an Android or Windows user. Your feedback helps me to create shows that will provide lots of value. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Gail Davis Design. Thanks so much, beautiful people.